Good morning. If, uh, if you have your Bibles, I just grab them. We'll be in, in Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I'll just say something um, kind of in line with what, uh, what Jaden said. Um, man, I'm so thankful for everybody who served during the missions conference. I, 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 I left that weekend very grateful to the Lord. And I believe that he was honored and glorified. And my prayer now going forward is that we would, that that would just be uh, one more like milestone as we want Christ to be magnified everywhere. You, you know what I mean? Magnified in our hearts, magnified in our church, magnified in this town, and magnified in the ends of the earth. Um, so what a great time. And I'm so thankful for everybody who served, uh, the worship team doing triple time sound and AV, all that um, so much work went into that, all the food prep, hosting. Um, thank you, everyone who served. And I couldn't even begin to start naming names because so many people jumped in and served. Thank you for that. Uh, so here we go today. We're in Matthew chapter 5, and our text is going to be verses 21 through 26. And the Word of God says this. You have heard that it was said... Of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, re- and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray again. Lord, we, uh, we, we, we've come together today for so many reasons. We want to be encouraged by being around one another as believers. This world is hard and we want to follow you in this world. And we come together at least once a week to encourage and challenge and edify one another so that we can follow you this week. So give us strength in that as, we, as we've come together to do that. And we, and we have come together to worship you because your name is above every name. We've, we've come together to, to, to sing of the excellencies of our God. So be exalted in that, Lord. And we have come together this morning, Father, so that we might hear from you. So we might hear your word to us. So Lord, I pray that you would speak loudly, powerfully, compellingly, through your word to our hearts and transform us. And in so many ways, Lord, I pray that through your word this morning, that there would be this impetus to to heal broken relationships, to fight back against anger that so easily controls us. That through your word this morning, we would see that we need a righteousness that is outside of us if we are are to have any hope of, of life with you. And that you have provided that life through Christ, that righteousness through him. 
So Father, I pray. I pray, I pray that the hearts in this room would be soft. I pray that the hardness of pride would just melt away. Pride against the gospel, pride against your word, pride that is just founded in self-righteousness. Let it all just go away. And may we be all ears with open hearts wanting your word to shape us. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've heard this a lot and you've probably heard it a lot too. Um, have you ever heard someone say, or have, maybe, maybe you've said it yourself, um, well, I haven't murdered anyone. You ever, you ever heard that? Like, that's like the classic cliche way to uh, defend your righteousness or, or to say that you're not that bad. That's like a way to say I'm not that bad, right? So, uh, and it's also like one of the things that I come across when I'm trying to share the gospel and you try to help people see a need for a savior, right? Right, right from the beginning, the first thing is, well, you know, you, you're talking about sin and all. Well, let me just tell you, I'm not that bad. I, I've never murdered anyone. I, I, I've never murdered anyone. And apparently that's the standard of righteousness to some. And I think we can think that way. Um, but you know, if you think of it, the I have never murdered anyone, if that's a club, it's a really big club. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I actually don't know very many people who've actually murdered somebody. Um, so uh, one time I was serving as a missionary, in, as I was serving as a missionary in Siberia, uh, I took a survey trip to a little, a little town in the Far East. Uh, we were, our goal was to see if there was a, a church in this little town and if there are Christians there and uh, what gospel work needed to, be, ha- needed to happen. I, I brought along a believer from our church there in Buryatia, a, a, a man named Misha. We traveled out a few days to this town and we literally knew no one and we didn't make any arrangements. It's not like you can just like jump on Expedia and get a hotel. We just got on a bus, went, and we thought we'd figure out our housing when we got there. Uh, so that was our goal, to see if there's a church in this town. So we arrived on a Sunday, it was Sunday morning early, and we started asking around people if they knew of, of any believers, any Christians. And everyone said, yeah, there is one church. It's at the end of town. Just walk down that way and go. And so we went uh, to this one church. It was a small church, handful of people. Uh, and we went to its, we, we, we missed its morning gathering by the time we figured everything out. So we went to its evening gathering. And the people were really warm. They welcomed us. You know, they didn't get a lot of visitors in this really remote town. Uh, and so they, we, they noticed us and they were all over us and talking to us and asking us where we're going to stay. And by this time, by the way, it's like evening, like the sun's going down and we didn't know where we were going to stay. And it was, I, I think it was winter. I don't remember what, it was probably cold, Siberia. Uh, it's always cold. Anyway, trying to figure out where we're going to stay and all that. And one of the church leaders came up to me, his name was Andre. And he said, hey, where are you guys staying? And I said, <laughs> maybe on outside. <laughs> and he said, actually, you're coming to my house. You can spend the night at my house tonight. And I said, that's great. So we went to his house. Uh, he set us up in his living room on the couches there. He had a couple couches there. And, and, uh, and then he, he like said goodnight and left. And uh, on, his, on a table there, he had a bunch of photo albums. And so I, I thought, you know, I would check this guy out. So I started looking through his photo albums. And in one of the photo albums, there's there like as a bookmark on a page, there's a patch. And on that patch, it said murder, murder in Russian, the, the word for murder. And I thought, that's weird. And I, I knew that in Russian prisons, they often, uh, I don't know if they still do this, but they, they used to, uh, the prisoners would wear their offense as a patch sewn on. And 
murder, right? So I'm like holding this. And I'm like, man, I wonder where he got this. And then I look down at the page and there's like this guy who looks a lot like Andre in this picture wearing a uniform that had a patch that looked like, a lot like the patch I was holding. Murder. And so I, uh, I, I said to Misha, I said, hey, Misha, look at this. And his eyes got really big, like saucers, you know, like, <gasps> you know. And then like, just like from a movie, we start hearing footprint, you know, footsteps coming back towards the living room. And, you know, I mean, maybe it was just normal, but it struck me as like, man, I'm about to be like in a movie here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's coming and, and then he, the door creaks open and he's standing, thankfully no ax or anything in his hands, just, a, just standing there, sees that I'm holding this patch, sees our big eyes, and says, okay, uh, let me tell you what happened. He sits down with us, and uh, it, with great shame, he shared that when he was a young man, he got into a drunken brawl with a guy, and the guy, the guy uh, fell down and, and hit his head and succumbed to his injuries a few days later, and he was charged with something like manslaughter, and it was all the same murder. And Anyway, went to jail, uh, became a, went to prison, became a believer in the prison, right? Like there was a, a prison ministry in this, in this prison that he went to, became a believer, and along with some other inmates, <laughs> former inmates became believers, they went out and started this church in this little town. So it was a cool story in the end, you know? Um, but, but he's one of the few people I know who can't say, I've never murdered. I mean, he had the patch, Right? He could not say, I've never murdered. And he knew that he needed Christ. He knew that, I mean, that, was, that crime was part of the reason he knew, he knew he needed Jesus. The guy was genuine. We enjoyed great fellowship with him after that. But again, as I know, I think he's the only guy who could say, I, I, I've never murdered anyone. Most of us don't have a passion like that. You probably don't have a passion that says murderer. On the surface, this particular command, which Jesus, which comes from the Ten Commandments, that he starts with here in verse twenty-one. On the surface, that looks like the easy one, right? Like that's the easy command: "Thou shalt not murder." Got it, right? No patch in my photo album that says "murderer." I'm okay. Got it. The Pharisees, that's how they thought about this law. Well, they flattened it out. You know what I mean? They flattened it out. I've never killed anyone. I'm good. This one's truly easy to keep. Just don't murder anyone. Just don't earn this one shameful patch and you're good. Or are you? That's where the text goes. And before we get into that, let me just say that right before this verse, Jesus said two amazing things and we've got to bring those into, into focus so that we understand this rightly. Two amazing things before this verse. First, back in verse 17, Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, last, last time we were in this series on Matthew. We, we talked about that every part of the Old Testament finds its fullest meaning in Christ. He has come to fulfill the law. So every, every thought, every promise, every command, he completes it all, brings it all, all to its fullest meaning, including the one about murder. And I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to return to it in a moment when we finish unpacking these verses. The second amazing thing that Jesus said right before this passage is in verse 20. He said, our righteousness, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then right on the heels of that, he starts with murder. 
And again, he started with the one that most Pharisees would have almost scoffed at. And there's an irony there, right? Because it was the Pharisees who are largely responsible for the actual murder of Jesus. But they would have scoffed at this one. Murder, of course, we're good here. We don't murder. So with our passage today, Jesus is teaching about a righteousness which totally exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. A righteousness which we must have if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's dive into this to see what Jesus actually demands of us and what righteousness he actually requires of us and consider, like practically consider what that means for our lives and for our relationships with other people. This is super practical actually. What it means ultimately for our eternity. You can see that this paragraph has two main parts to it. There's the, the, the command, the truth, the principle that Jesus is teaching. And on, on, under that backdrop of thou shalt not murder, right? He, he teaches a principle about anger and abusive speech. And then he talks about the application of that with these two examples. And so that's how we'll walk through it. First, the truth, the principle, and then those two examples. So he begins with this axiomatic command, the self-evident command. His hearers had all heard this most famous line from the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And then he gives an obvious like consequence of murder. It's actually not from the Old Testament, uh, but it's, no one would have said, wait a minute, where'd you get that from? You look at the, the second part of verse 21. It's not in the Old Testament, but nothing about it that anyone would have any issues with. Whoever murders will be liable for judgment, Right? And I, I think that's axiomatic, self-evident, it's obvious, because everyone agrees with that. I think it's simply written on our hearts as image bearers. Murder is wrong. Every culture on the planet has some concept of that. Not every culture gets it right. Lots of cultures get it horribly wrong, including, including our culture in some ways. Lots of cultures get it wrong. But all of us have it written on our hearts Murder's wrong. Every culture, I'd say every person knows inside that killing another human being out of malice is wrong. And everybody agrees that a murderer must face consequences. Almost all the codes of law on, the, on earth provide judgment for murder. In our society, if someone murders another person, the police will investigate what happened, right? They will bring charges. The accused will be arrested. He'll stand trial. A prosecutor will, 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 will present a case before a jury. He'll, be a, he'll have a chance to give his defense. And if the jury believes that the prosecution was right, he'll be convicted, right? And then he'll be sentenced. And usually that means prison. Sometimes worse, usually it means a long prison sentence. Maybe the rest of his life in jail. So there's judgment. Everyone who murders will be liable for judgment. And even if that person escapes human justice, like even, I don't know, maybe he, uh, maybe, maybe the, the prosecutor does a bad job at, um, you know, presenting the case. <coughs> O.J. Simpson. There's all kinds of things that could happen there, right? You could present the case badly. You could get let off on a technicality. There could be some, some issue that he doesn't go to jail. Maybe he dies. Maybe he dies before human justice is meted out. Right? Happens. He will still face judgment though. He will still be liable for judgment. No one escapes the perfect justice of God. No one. 
So far, so good. I think we all agree. There wasn't a Pharisee in earshot who would have complained up to that point. Murder makes a person liable for judgment, both in the human justice realm and before the ultimate judge of heaven and earth. It makes the person liable for judgment. But then Jesus takes us way further. Using the same phrase, liable for judgment, Jesus teaches us that anger and abusive speech makes us liable for judgment. He means the general kind of anger we all experience. There's a righteous type of anger, I know. I'm not going to really go there this morning, but there's a godly anger against sin and injustice that's in this world that's right. Uh, That's just not in view here. That's not what he's talking about. This is the kind of anger most of us experience most. The sinful, selfish anger because someone slighted you or did something you didn't like or wronged you, but anger at just something like that. So a lot of people object to the thought that anger is sin because, you know, God gets angry and God doesn't sin, and that's true. But most anger, the anger of man, all of the anger of man is sinful. So Jesus is teaching not that murder and anger are identical, okay? He's not saying that, or that they deserve the same kind of judgment to the same extent. That's not exactly what he's teaching. What he is teaching is that in the same way murder makes one liable for judgment, our anger, which it's at the root of murder, makes us liable for judgment. When he says judgment, just because of the way this paragraph unfolds, especially the final example, I think he's like intertwining human justice and divine justice. I think they're both in view here, and I'll explain more as we go, but I think he's intertwining human justice and divine justice. I think he, he means just one, he, he doesn't just mean one kind of judgment, like God's judgment or judgment here on earth. I think he means all of it. I think Jesus is teaching that when anger manifests itself in our lives, it puts us in a position in which we are liable to God's judgment and that there are massive human consequences to that often human justice. And we don't have to like strain our minds to, to, to see the validity of the truth of that, right? How many anger-infused confrontations lead to massive consequences? I mean, you've seen it, right? You've, you've seen it, if you're honest. You've probably experienced it. I have. How many, how many of those kind of anger-infused or anger-fueled confrontations lead to judgment? Anger has real, tangible consequences in this life and ultimately leads to judgment before God. Anger rarely just stays hidden away in the heart. It almost always manifests itself. And here, the example he's given is through abusive speech. Or it could manifest itself in actions. But even if it doesn't do that, I mean, we can't miss what he's saying here. Even if it doesn't do that, that sinful anger in our hearts puts us at odds with the God who judges everything, who sees the heart. The anger is sin before God. Now that must have been shocking news to the Pharisees who, again, they flattened this out. They could only see what the hands and the feet and the mouths, bodies do, not what the heart does. For them, anger is perfectly fine so long as you restrain it. So long as you don't go like assault somebody or cuss somebody out, or I guess you 
maybe you could do that. You don't murder anyone, you know, and, and we kind of think that way too, don't we, sometimes? Because, like, we, we talk about, like, a healthy way to work out our anger. Go, go hit a punching bag, right? Go, go get your anger out that way. Go, go shoot something, which, you know, I'm all for if it's a good thing to shoot, you know, but not to get your anger out. We, we can think that it's just a, a, it's perfectly fine. It's, Jesus goes way beyond their surface interpretation that they took confidence in. You know, they, they, they just, they held the patch up. I, I don't have that patch. I'm good. And Jesus comes along and says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he talks about anger. And he moves quickly into the realm of abusive speech. He gives two words. One, the ESV doesn't attempt to translate and one, it translates. Look at, look at verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoever insults his brother, that's not actually the, the best translation out there. Uh, that's the ESV. This, uh, usually ESV is awesome. Here it doesn't na- nail it per se. Uh, it hits what Jesus means, but he actually uses an insulting term here from the Aramaic language. Uh, it's the word raka, if you needed to know that. If you have the NIV, actually, it actually lists the word raka. Whoever says raka to his brother or sister is answerable to the court. Now, raka means uh, a lot of things. It could mean like good for nothing. Um, it can mean numbskull. That's my personal favorite, numbskull. It can mean idiot, something like that. Like it just basically means you're a fool. Like it can mean the word fool, which makes it very interesting that he then uses the word fool too, right? But the next part, verse 22, he says, you fool. And here he's using the same word basically, but he's going to the Greek language. It's the word moros, which is the word we get the word moron from in English. So he's saying two words that are almost identical. Like, and I think he's, he's painting a picture here that's general. Whether you're a good Jew who speaks Aramaic and uses the word raka, or whether you're a Gentile pagan who uses the word moros, or whether you're an American who uses any number of creative words that are abusive and hurtful towards others, either way, that abusive speech, which is rooted in anger, makes you liable for human courts, like the counsel that he mentions and divine judgment, specifically the fires of hell. So, I mean, feel that for a moment. This has consequences. Your abusive tongue makes you guilty before a holy God. Feel that. Feel, think back. Just be real with yourself for a moment and think back at the last time you uttered something abusive to somebody. These aren't the worst Aramaic and Greek words he could have thought of. There are lots worse. Just as fool is not the worst English word I could think of. But even further than that, right? I mean, even further. Your angry heart makes you liable before God. How are you feeling about that? I've never murdered anyone defense. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's dismantling it. I don't think anyone can hear this and feel like you can make your case of your righteousness before God. And he's just getting started. He's just beginning to, to, to 
to plumb the depths here of our hearts. And this was leveling to me, if I'm being honest. It doesn't take me that, like I don't have to go that far back in my past to think of a time when I said something abusive. Like not that far back in this week. Or cross. And Jesus teaches that both that anger that's behind it all and what, what, what manifests itself in the way that I speak, both of those things put me at odds with God. Like, wow. I don't have that murder patch that my brother in Christ, Andre, has. But I have plenty of patches that make me liable for judgment. You know what this did as I studied this passage this week? It led me to the cross of Christ. Like, like you read this with an open heart and you have to say, man, I've got nothing to strut here. I've got no righteousness to parade before you. I have only Christ. And of course, the good news is that Christ is sufficient. I have a savior. I have this obvious and desperate need And my Savior died on the cross for me, even though I'm a sinner, because I'm a sinner, so that I would be justified before him. And that justification is based not on my feeble, I've never murdered anyone kind of goodness, but on the righteousness of the one who bled and died and rose again. So that's the principle. It's not just the ultimate and final act of anger, murdering somebody that makes us liable for judgment. It isn't just the fruit of the tree that makes the tree bad, right? I mean, that's, that's how we think, you know? Like, man, I got some bad fruit there. I just could go pull that fruit off. No, the whole tree's bad. That's what Jesus is teaching. The problem goes right down to the roots and Jesus is exposing it. But we shouldn't just flatten like this 3D version out in a similar way that the Pharisees flattened out the original version. He's not just speaking about where you're going to spend eternity. He, Jesus is not only making the case that you are a lawbreaker, although he is certainly doing that. And I don't want anyone to miss that. But that's not all he's doing here. That's not all he's doing. This, this is wonderfully relevant. He is showing us the tremendous costliness of sin in regards both to our eternal standing with God and right now as we do life with one another. And I know that most clearly by the two examples that Jesus gives that he puts hands and feet to this right here. You can see it in verses 23 through 26. And let me read those again and we'll think about these two examples. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, it's verse 23, Remember that your bro- and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. The first word of that, I just read, so helps us to see that this is the application, right, of the truth he's teaching. The truth is that anger and abusive speech have huge and costly consequences. And these examples are the practical take-homes of that truth. The first example is that anger hinders our worship. 
it hinders our worship. Jesus sets, up, sets us up with a guy who's about to make an offering, doing some religious deed in worship to God. Like the very specifics of that, it's not super clear. Could have been anything. But he's doing some religious worship. But he remembers someone has something legitimately against me. I have wronged somebody. And he hasn't reconciled with that brother or sister in Christ. And here he is about to do some act of worship. And Jesus says, knock it off. You think you can just worship God freely and unhindered while, while this sin against God and against that brother is just festering in your heart? No, your sin hinders your worship. Stop it. First go to your brother and be reconciled. Then come and worship freely and in an unhindered way. Sin hinders worship. You know, you cannot put everything into these neat little boxes that we like to do. You know what I mean? You got this nice little box that has all your human relationships in it, right? And that box might have all kinds of filth in it. Let's get some good things too. You know, you got this guy that you like. But there's a lot of bad things too, right? Then you got this box that has to do with your relationship with God. And on Sundays, you simply close the lid of this box and you open this lid because this has got all kinds of beautiful things in it, right? I'll go back to that later or maybe I won't, but right now I've got this box. The gospel comes along and says, knock it off. You have one box, one box. What Jesus is teaching is that God is not impressed with that neat little separate box you think you're, that's separate from the box that you have for him. The box with your broken relationships and, and then your box with him, it's all the same. It's not separate because your sin against other people is sin against God. Both boxes have rod. That's what he's teaching. Not just the one, both. So first go in humility and be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come back and enjoy unhindered worship. Jesus is being so practical here. Anger and interpersonal sin hinder relationships, hinder worship rather. The second example, that's the first example. I'm gonna try and pull all this together in a moment here. But the second example was a little bit more difficult for me to grasp and understand. It's a picture of a dispute between me and my brother in Christ um, that's unresolved and difficult and leads us, leads the thing goes so far as to seek a legal resolution. That's the picture here. An accuser taking me to court. Maybe a business deal gone bad or something. And Jesus warns me to try to reconcile with that brother before he goes all the way to court and the judge rules on my case. It was difficult for me to understand why he said that thing about being thrown into prison, right? Like, now I know, I know debtor's prison was a thing. I, I get the history and the culture there that, you know, you, that, you, know you could go to prison and um, debtor's prison was kind of a, a catch 22 because you're in jail, you can't earn any money and you have to stay there till you pay it back. And so the idea is that you get your friends to come to your side and the debt gets dispersed. You owe other people and not just that main debt or all that. I, I get that that's what's there, but I don't understand why he's saying this. At first, it almost sounds like he's being really pragmatic, right? Like just warning us that the outcome would be better for me if I would simply reason with my accuser. Like, like this, is, this is practical. Just do this and you won't have all these legal consequences. And maybe that's kind of here. But what made it finally come clear to me was that last thing he said. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So that made it clear to me. Let me try to help make it clear to you. 
why is it that we hold grudges? Why is it that we refuse to be reconciled? Why is it that when we wrong somebody that we are hesitant to to go to that person and apologize and to seek their forgiveness and to repent? Why? 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 When I have a thing with my wife, why? And I know that I'm wrong, which is, you know, I know rare, but, you know, I know I'm wrong. Why am I so hesitant to go and apologize and tell her I'm wrong? Why don't we reconcile quicker? Why the delay? That's the question I'm asking you to ponder for a moment. The reason is because we know reconciliation is costly, right? Like it's going to cost me something to reconcile. We don't reconcile as quickly as we ought. And sometimes we never reconcile because we fear that we will have to give up so much to reconcile. Like it, it's, it's going to cost me the satisfaction of being one up in this relationship or, or it's going to cost me my pride. I'm going to have to humble myself. That's costly, right? Reconciliation is costly. And you know, right to the heart of this, it might even cost me in my circumstances to reconcile. I might have to own up to something I really did wrong. Like, maybe it it could even be financial. That's the point he's bringing here. And by the way, reconciliation, that's a financial term, right? So it's perfect to think about this in terms of cost. You reconcile accounts. Reconciling our accounts, our accounts is a costly deal. And the fear of that cost is what often keeps two brothers or sisters or church members or spouses or neighbors or classmates or friends from reconciling. And we need to hear Jesus on this. This is the whole point of this. He is plainly teaching that the costliness of not reconciling is far greater that's what he's saying here. You, you fear reconciliation because you fear it's going to cost you. And Jesus is saying what you should fear is not reconciling you because that costs way more, infinitely more. If we got that in our minds, we would be quick to reconcile. What does it cost to not reconcile? Well, he says you might be thrown in debtor's prison. You might have to pay every last penny. You might have to suffer other consequences. You might end up before an actual court. You will end up, almost for sure, enduring the pain of a broken relationship, hurting other people. Very costly. Very costly. I don't know how many funerals I've been at where people have lamented not reconciling. It's costly. And ultimately, Jesus is teaching that you will stand before God one day and give an account of that refusal to reconcile. And simply saying, well, God, I didn't murder him, will not be enough. It will not be a sufficient defense. Not reconciling is more costly than reconciliation. Are you feeling the weight of this right now, friends? You're not feeling the weight of a heavy sermon. If you're reading this with honesty, you feel the weight of God's word. And if you're feeling the weight of that, let me bring the two awesome truths to round this out in light of the gospel. In light of Christ who fulfilled it all in himself. And they both come from Romans chapter 8. 
The first truth is that the good news that is the good news that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law in himself and in us. This is really good when we feel this weight. Listen to Romans 8, 1 through 4, but especially verse 4. Especially verse 4. Paul wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus went to the cross and he did that not only to vanquish the guilt that you have because of your angry heart, I mean, he did that. He did that to vanquish the guilt that you have because of your angry heart. But he also did that to free you from that angry heart forever. He didn't just pay the consequence of that anger. He paid the price so that you could be free from it in this life. You see, in Christ, we're no longer bound to the flesh. We're no longer bound to sin to our anger, our pride, our envy, our jealousy, our spite, all the things that keep us from reconciling. We are now free to walk by the power of the Spirit and to love one another. Isn't that beautiful? We are free to walk according to the Spirit. Jesus took care of the whole tree, the whole tree, not just the fruit. Pharisees loved pulling the fruit. Jesus transplanted the tree. And now the fruit that hangs from that boughs are fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, self-control. That's the second truth, by the way. Free. So he went to the cross to vanquish the guilt, to set us free. Second truth, you can be free from this in Christ as you walk by the power of the Spirit. Both of those right there in Romans 8. And let me just say a word to you. If you're feeling, if the Lord is convicting you of a specific relationship that you need to reconcile. Now I get it. Reconciliation takes two, right? You can only do your part. Reconciliation takes two people to reconcile accounts. But if you're feeling the conviction that you need to do your part, I want to encourage you to hear the words of Jesus so practically and so radically transforming in your life that you leave here resolved to obey Christ. To not let another day go if, you can, if it's in your power to do it. To hear his word, walk by the spirit in obedience and in his power and not wait another moment, but go to that brother or that sister in humility and reconcile the relationship as best as you can. And be free. Don't continue in a sin that hinders your worship. Don't continue in a sin that is so costly, so costly, much more than you imagine. Instead, yield in obedience to Christ by the power of the Spirit. Listen to the words of Christ and go and be reconciled. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear all of that really clearly and that this wouldn't be more 
moralism or rules to keep, but that we would see the spirit of this and what Christ is teaching us in this. And we would seek with all of our hearts to obey Christ with our confidence in what Jesus has done on the cross. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you so specifically because you died on the cross for my sin. I am definitely guilty of this passage. This passage is my guilt. And yet you have died and paid for that price for me so that I can stand before you righteous, justified by Christ through faith. Lord, I pray that our conviction would lead us there to the cross with faith in Jesus Christ, the faith that saves us. And Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of your grace and by the power of your spirit, heal relationships through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.